Hello, everybody, and welcome to Reverb. I'm Benjamin Williams, and today I'm joined on the mic by my co-host, Dr. Calvin Pollock. How are you doing today, Calvin? Doing good, Ben. How are you? Good, thanks. And today we have a, a guest with us. We have Dr. Richard Purcell, an associate professor of English at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, his research focuses on film and media, black literature, poetry, music, and other forms of black performance and visual art. He's also interested in aesthetic theory, black studies, as well as Marxist and post-Marxist thought. We're very excited to have uh, Rich with us today. How are you? I'm great. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. So to get our conversation started, we were hoping you could tell us a little bit about your current research into black artistic labor and conceptions of work in the 1990s, as well as how this led you back into studying political debates in the 1960s and 70s about economic policy in black communities. Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. Um, and I'm, again, very happy to, to have this conversation with both of you. My research into black artistic labor, you know, in, in the book I'm writing right now and the research I'm doing really spans from, you know, the dawn of what we kind of identify as, as hip hop culture until, you know, a little bit after the Great Recession, the book I'm writing ends in roughly 2013 or so. But the reason I got interested in that is because I'm a, I grew up as a big hip hop head. Uh, I love hip hop. I mean, I love other music, but hip hop is really kind of what I was I was raised on musically and culturally. I grew up in New York in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, as I got older and a bit more self-reflective about hip hop, rap music, I started to realize, and, you know, obviously I'm not the only person to identify this, that hip hop is one of a few kind of like popular cultural forms that's incredibly self-conscious and profoundly interested, interested in the conditions of production, distribution, and consumption of commodities, right? That like rappers, I think punk musicians and others are the same way. There's some, you know, kind of subgenres of rock music that I think get into this in the 60s and 70s as well. But I would say punk and rap more than anything else. And I think there's a reason for their, those two in particular, but you know, our, our musical genres are forms of art that are really interested in conditions of production, distribution, consumption of commodities. See, see their art as a commodity in a very self-conscious way. And throughout the history of, of, of hip hop, and I would say punk as well, it's easy to find artists who, are, who demonstrate a kind of sophisticated self-reflexivity about their status as workers, right, in an industry whose compensation for their work and the relationship to their works, like the artworks they produce, are, are equal and fraught, you know, to say the least. The art they produce and the way they talk about work within late-stage capital, this is kind of, you know, leading back to your question, I think is a great place to think about, and I'd say anticipate, for better or for worse, you know, the intensely exploitative, service-based nature of the neoliberal free market and the current kind of form of capitalism. Right. A lot of these artists are already thinking about this in the 70s and 80s in particular. And I see this kind of interest developing and fracturing into the 80s and 90s. And the book I'm writing is sort of tracing all of that out, actually. And so, you know, about the book, so like and how I kind of how I got back to like 
wonky debates about economics in the 60s and 70s. You know, I felt confident talking about contemporary black cultural politics, black art, politics of black art, its relationship to other art forms and artistic movements in the 70s and 80s. Like I had a pretty good grasp on all that, as well as kind of like, you know, my own kind of surface level understanding of political economy and sort of the economics of neoliberalism since the 70s. But I never really got into the actual economic debates and theories, right? Or looked at like what economists were saying, especially black economists at the time, about the economic shifts that were beginning in the 60s and 70s that, you know, we kind of now kind of understand and call neoliberalism. So I just started like reading. I was like, huh, like what were people saying back then? But I started doing my homework and I just really, you know, unforeseen to me stumbled into this whole discourse about black capitalism. Like I knew about black capitalism. It's mentioned in the writings of people from like Huey P. Newton to, you know, Stokely Carmichael, Jesse Jackson. A lot of people talk about it. But I never really like, and I knew it was a Nixon kind of initiative in the 1960s for his 1968 election. But I never knew like how people were writing and talking about it and how much they were until, you know, I kind of, it's like anything, you start, you pull the thread and then like, you know, you see how much things unravel. And that's really how I kind of really got into the nitty gritty of the 60s and 70s stuff and about economic policy because there was just this really kind of rich debate happening across a cross section of people from Theodore Cross to James Boggs, you know, like, you know, a kind of Harvard business trained economist and editor of, you know, a Bankers Monthly or some kind of magazine to like a hardcore like Marxist who trained with CLR James, like you have, you know, who's based in Detroit, like you have this, this vast spectrum of people talking about this idea of black capitalism and like, you know, the best way to sort of serve the inequities or like address the inequities of, of, of black people in the U.S. And, you know, I just kind of have currently been kind of just kind of finding my way through all of that archive and research. And so, so like hip hop actually brought me there, to be honest with you. And that's how I got back to that stuff. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating just to move from conceptions of work and, and black aesthetics into that. But I'm hoping you could take us through some of the central tenets of black capitalism itself. It might be unfamiliar to some of our listeners, but can you just tell us a little bit about it and why it developed such valence during the Nixon era as well? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and like I said, I I knew it. I knew about the term. There's a, I don't know if you guys saw Judas and the Black Messiah, but there's this great moment in the very beginning. This is like a montage in the beginning of, of, of the film with Fred Hampton. It's kind of, you know, like, a, it's seen as like found footage, but it's all kind of shot more contemporarily, obviously, for the sake of the film. And the director has Hampton make a passing reference to, to black capitalism in the film. And, you know, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm going to kind of talk more about the, this, the, the Nixonian effort, but you know, this idea that economic uplift is a kind of panacea to civil and social ills is something that's been around for a very long time, for centuries, right? And the resistance to that idea, right, that the, the economy, the free market, or even any kind of planned economy is really like the silver bullet, as it were, to, to equity without other kind of legal and radical tra- political transformations. And so this is all to say that 
the specific Nixon program emerges out of his campaign for, for presidency in 1968. And it's a slogan. I mean, and I want to kind of return to like that part of it. It's, it was a campaign slogan, like a lot of campaign slogans. And I was thinking about this as I was preparing. I was like, you know, we can kind of, you know, there's all these kind of uh, critiques of woke capitalism and how dare corporations enter the field of like social justice and you know, these Republican kind of critiques. I was like, if I were a political, Republican political strategist, I would go back and say like Republicans invented woke capitalism because like basically in some ways, Richard Nixon's black capitalism is some kind of weird version of that. But anyway, so, you know, to get to the nitty gritty of it, so Richard Nixon during his campaign promised a kind of set of public, and public meaning the state, right, the government, and private corporate business partnerships that would alleviate the economic ills that plagued black people by giving them better access to the free market, jobs, job training, wealth creation, and so on and so forth. Right. The argument, and I have already alluded to this, was the best way to guarantee civil rights and social equity was through access to the market and not necessarily guaranteeing rights through the state or laws or policy. Right. I mean, 68 is a very important year. Obviously, I don't have to get too much into that. But in the U.S. in particular, you know, we're kind of at this important crossroads between kind of the waning of like the great society, this kind of, you know, basically from the depression into Kennedy, into Lyndon Johnson, right? Like the idea that the state is really the most important institution in guaranteeing, you know, equity for citizens and for building the kind of institutions and programs that will raise us all up, right? To, to a kind of equal status. You know, there's always tensions around that, but like, the 68 election, and I think anything, everything that happens afterwards is really an inflection point because there's a kind of very rapid and concerted move away from that from Nixon on, even by Democrats, you know, in, in office. And so this is to say that Nixon's appeal to and his slogan of black capitalism, I think appeals both to like, hey, look, the state's going to intervene and help black people out by giving them access to the market. And there's a governmental kind of interest in that. But a lot of the efforts that the Nixon administration put together at the time, like they established this Office of Minority Business Enterprise, you know, they really facilitated and were interested in helping community development corporations develop. You know, they gave, they were trying to give lots of incentives to private corporate capital for hiring and so on and so forth, right? A lot of it was basically not so much the government creating programs, but giving incentives to private corporations in the, in the, in the private sphere to create jobs or to, to, to do these things, right? So, you know, Nixon's program, I think, is a kind of interesting bridge between this kind of great society ideology and discourse and, you know, the, this kind of emergent kind of neoliberal free market ethos about equity and participation in, in civil society and letting the market determine what equity and equality is. So when Nixon got into office, and there's a great article that was written by Weems and Randolph called The National Response to Richard Nixon's Black Capitalism Initiative, they talk about how when Nixon got elected, it was like, uh-oh, like we kind of campaigned on this slogan of black capitalism. And like we don't really know what we're doing. And so the things I mentioned before were what they did, 
But, you know, it was really quickly kind of uh, clear to even, you know, private business owners and definitely civil rights leaders and, and, and more kind of left progressive and radical black intellectuals and activists that the kind of government incentives and the programs that Richard Nixon was proposing was going to have a very minimal impact, right? But, and I think I'm kind of addressing the other part of your question here, the discussion that was generated out of this really kind of, I would say, small and short-lived policy initiative, I, did, I don't even want to call it policy. This initiative generated, I think, the idea, I think, has had a longer shelf life than the actual policy that was generated out of it. You know, and so like any slogan, this is why the sloganeering part of it is important. It's like it was a, it's an, it's an idea that had a lot of like had had legs and like people could debate it and grasp it, but like its substance was very minimal. Um, And also, I think it 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 did a lot of work in terms of getting conservatives at the time who believed in the free market, who did not want to have the government intervene in the realm of civil society in terms of laws, policy, you know, all the civil rights uh, sort of in laws that were enacted after 1965. Like there was a, a there was a definite desire to move away from all of that, right? But especially by conservatives at the, in the 1960s, right? Uh, especially if you're thinking about, you know, the Vietnam War and how much money is being sort of thrown into that as well in the 60s and into the 70s. You know, it also, the black capitalism appeal to another important part of 60s discourse that I would say actually kind of comes from the center left, which is this idea of kind of a cultures of poverty as well, right? That like the most kind of famous um, example of this is, uh, you know, Daniel Moynihan, the Moynihan report on the Negro family, you know, this kind of discourse about the melting pot, which like there are these multiple Americas, you know, sort of occupied by ethnic and racial minorities, right? That a lot of the problems of progress were rooted in culture, right? That black people, brown people, Puerto Ricans, Irish, you know, African-Americans, right? And, and I would even say, even though much of the Moynihan stuff was about cities, I would say this is something that's even the case when people think about like white Appalachia and other sort of areas in the US, right? These are communities that are poor because they're just, they're kind of spoiled identities, right? These people just don't know how to deal with modernity, deal with money, deal with progress, right? Again, this is kind of an old school kind of Protestant work ethic, almost ethos, which is to say, in order to get them to rise out of their, their, their station, it's going to take access to work, you know, or like making them better workers. And so this kind of black capitalist, black capitalism appeals, I think, to these very old ideas that have been knocking around in the West and in the U.S. for a long time, for centuries, I would say. And so it appeals to like a lot of these. It also like, you know, I would say that a lot of Democrats at the time, too, believed in that kind of cultures of poverty argument. And so I think the idea just had a very broad appeal, even though in the end it really was just an idea, it was a hollow one, right? I mean, I could get more into like untangling the kind of the the nature of black capitalism, but as like a as a as a policy initiative, I would say that's what it was, and that's where the sort of central tenets come from. This is super interesting to think about both the historical situatedness and rootedness of that concept and this was a time of incredibly rich 
intellectual debate, especially on the black left, right? And so I think we our listeners would love to hear more about some of the critiques that this idea of black capitalism inspired. You, you pointed us to a really fascinating article by an author named James Boggs called The Myth and Irrationality of Black Capitalism. And I just wanted to read a quote from it where Boggs distinguishes black community development from community development of colonized peoples. And so he he writes, the undevelopment of black communities is not the result of the fact that the colony's natural and historical process of development was interrupted and destroyed by colonialism so that large sections of the country have been forced to become or remain pre-industrial or agricultural. On the other hand, the physical structure of black communities is the direct result of the industrial development, which has turned these communities into wastelands, abandoned by industry as it has undergone technological revolutions, unquote. That's a quote from James Boggs in The Myth and Irrationality of Black Capitalism. So could you just like expand on where these critiques were coming from intellectually and some of the other sort of arguments that got leveraged against this idea of black capitalism in the late 60s and 70s? Yeah, Calvin, that's an ex- excellent question. So, th- I mean, there's so many threads to go here, precisely because, I mean, one of the things with the, the, the readings that I sent to the two of you, there's a rather large spectrum of critiques of black capitalism that come from, you know, I would say some of the more obvious quarters like James Boggs, who is, you know, one of my intellectual heroes and I would say an unheralded thinker. I mean, a lot more people are writing about Boggs now, which is really awesome. And I feel very privileged to kind of be in conversation and see more stuff being published about him. But I mentioned him earlier that Boggs was actually an auto worker, raised in the South, moved up to Detroit and was working in, in, in an auto plant. And, you know, I would say, you know, Boggs is an interesting figure precisely because he was kind of radicalized on the, the shop floor, as it were. You know, like it's kind of a, a very, if you know, when thinking about movement culture and progressivism in the U.S. and the histories of unions and the way in which workers are inculcated and folded into union and left movements are... Well, not to say those two things necessarily <laughs> exclusive or to, to, to link together, but it was in the auto industry that um, he was kind of radicalized. You know, Detroit was also a really important place in the 50s and 60s for radical, particularly sort of Marxist political thought, C.R. James, Grace Lee, a lot of Marxist thinkers who were students of Trotsky actually were in Detroit and writing newsletters, organizing, meeting with workers. And Boggs was a part of that circle of thinkers. I mean, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds of the intellectual history of this, but there was a split between James and, and, and Grace and, J- and Grace Lee and James Boggs and others in the early 60s. But the point is, the reason why Boggs, Detroit, Black laborers in particular, in auto industry and other sort of industrial jobs were important to James and to, you know, uh, James Boggs and CLR James and others is because there was this debate happening within Marxism about like who the, who the kind of proletariat was, who the avant-garde of the revolution was. And James himself and others thought that that was black workers, actually. 
right? And so James Box was of this belief as well. And again, I'm not going to get too much into the particularities to like the split and why and what kind of vanguard black workers were. But the point is, for James, since you brought up James Boggs, what distinguished black workers from other workers was their relationship to automation and the kind of technological shifts that were happening to industrial labor in the, in, starting from the 50s into the 60s, right? Definitely accelerated more in the 60s, right? And for Boggs, and he got this somewhat right, I would say, you know, and this is something that a lot of economists and labor economic uh, economists were talking about in the 60s and 70s and still today, right? Which is, you know, what happens to the value of work when you kind of don't need humans to do work anymore, right? And so Boggs saw this in the auto industry. He saw this affecting the way that union, labor union politics were playing themselves out. And his first book, American Revolution, was all about looking at the, the kind of landscape of black political power and organization around and as it was affected by automation, right, and these technological shifts, right? So for Boggs, underpinning a lot of his ideas about black capitalism and the problems of capitalism was what he saw as a movement of the U.S., right, into a sphere where you would have these huge swaths of people who did not who could not be employed and did and, and could because you know whether there was no more jobs the jobs that they would hold if they were low skilled in particular would be gone even if they were kind of not, not so low skilled would be gone right not to say that working on a in an auto plant is lost low skill low skill labor as it's not and so for him as a theorist as a marxist theorist he was contemplating what this meant right and he actually saw this and this is the one of the things about his work that i find so so fascinating he saw this as a very powerful political moment for a black proletariat and for the U.S. Because for Boggs, he said, what does it mean for black people in particular? But like, you know, for him, he could extrapolate this out to others. What does it mean to have humanity no longer defined by work and the value of work, right? And, and the kind of work that we're talking about is wage work, exploitative work, right? I mean, you know, Boggs read his Marx, and so he's thinking of the way Marx talks about labor exploitation, right? Like, it's not based on a perfect market, like where like you like exploitation gets alleviated when like there's equal competition. Like for Marx, like there's no such thing as that within capitalism, right? Like it's about extracting surpluses from workers despite what they make, right? And so for Boggs, he was kind of thinking about this this moment, like we have this whole swath of the population, black people primarily, who are freed from the historic association between black bodies, right, as commodities and work. And he said, this is an important moment of like political reckoning, right? What can you do with all these people who now are kind of in this flux in terms of their subjectivity and their sense of selves, right? That they can be radicalized basically, right? And it's gonna kind of reorientate our relationship to capitalism. And so this is all to say that Boggs', Boggs criticism of black capitalism in some sense is like, it doesn't matter who is the capitalist, if it's a black person or a white person, this system of exploitation will continue, right? Like, and so in this way, to go back to the quote you read, Boggs is interesting because this quote here both, and this is Boggs himself as a thinker and as an organizer, 
saw the importance of black nationalism, this idea that there's a particularity and a connection between all black people within the West, within the United States, within urban areas, right? But it also shows that like he, he's very aware of the fact that like an exploitator is an exploitator. It doesn't really matter if they're black or white. And also that the kind of exploitation and inequity that black people are experiencing in the US in the 1960s is like other forms of exploitation happening, you know, in what at the time was like, you know, we call it now the global south, but at the time it was like the third world, right? And so this attention in that quote, which I think is very productive and, and, and useful, especially given the discussions of black capitalism that's happening, of like black people occupying a kind of nation, a kind of like self-contained, having this kind of colonial relationship with the US or with Western capital, and yet this kind of international sense of black identity and solidarity with others that that you know that is a that you know is also a mark of a lot of the different versions of black radical organizing that's happening in the 60s and 70s right like there's a really important and visible tension especially as you get later in the 60s between like what was called like the cultural nationalists karenga and others right like a kind of more afrocentric version of black radicalism and then you know what happens to like the black panthers and huey p newton as an example Right. Even like in terms of Angela Davis, where there's a more sort of internationalist understanding, right, where like, you know, it's not such a cultural nationalism, but a kind of internationalism. I mean, Newton calls it sort of intercommunalism, right, between oppressed peoples. Right. And so this all this discussion is happening in this moment when even within movement circles and radical circles of of, of black power discourse, there is a kind of wondering of like how do we think of ourselves as a collective and how do we see ourselves relating to others and 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 james boggs quote really embodies some of that is you know within his critique of capitalism he's also i think revealing some of the tensions in the movement at the time i i kind of wanted to move the conversation a little bit to thinking about black marxism more generally right as a tradition that is distinct from marxism i know with Cedric Robinson's 1983 work, if you could just tell us a little bit about Black Marxism as a tradition. And I, what I hope you can move the conversation a little bit toward as well is how some of the laborers and artists that you're looking at are self-reflexive around these conversations, right? So how are they in some sense responding to this Black capitalist discourse as well as thinking through in some ways self-reflexively about the radical critiques in response as well. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah, Cedric Robertson's work is so incredibly important. And I guess the kind of the, the condensed version that Robinson, Robinson's work really, for me and for others who are interested in this sort of intersection between Black studies and, and, and Marxism, I think does a really good job of getting us to think about who, and this is something that I was mentioned with Boggs, and Boggs is sort of split with C.L.R. James and Trotsky and so on and so forth, well, at least like the legacies of Trotsky, had to do with like who is the subject of Marxist sort of analysis, right? Like who is the proletariat that Marx is talking about? Is this a universal proletariat? Is the idea of the proletariat something that can be projected into all laboring peoples, right? I would say Marx himself questioned that as well. 
you know, uh, especially in his later works when he wrote about America and so on and so forth. Like, so, you know, Marx was not a static thinker at all. So I don't want to sort of use this as a way to throw him under the bus in any way, shape or form. But I think Robinson's point is important, which is that the legacies of Marxism, at least, I know there are exceptions to this, but the legacies of Marxism, the way that Marxism is taught in the West and understood in the West, either willfully excludes black radical traditions as aligned with it, right? Or don't really interrogate, this is Robinson's point in black Marxism, don't really interrogate the racialized identity of the working class in Europe, right? That the, the proletariat is as much a class category as it is a racialized category. And I think Marx knew that actually. I mean, you know, Marx's idea about class and class struggle was very consciously borrowed from an older understanding of class, which was actually about race, right? That like monarchical rule, hereditary wealth were things that were passed down through biological lineage, right? It's kind of a racialized idea of like the relationship between peoples who occupied a, what, what labor could call a class, right? It was, it was understood as raced, you know? And so I think Marx himself was very aware of that transition. But the point is, you know, for Robinson that, you know, Marx's work, Marx's interest in, in labor was very much centered in a market, in a set of industries and in industrial forms of capitalism that were buttressed by the expansion in the context of colonialism. And so there's a kind of racialized discourse that's already happening. You know, I can't, I don't want to say necessarily, because like what whiteness means then is very different than what it means now. It's also in transition at the time. But Robinson's point is that there's this kind of exclusion, right? And so Robinson's work is really looking at how can we think about a black radical tradition alongside of, but also different than sort of what he thinks is like, the inadequacies of Marxism to account for black radical thought, black relationships to anti-capitalism and labor, right? And so, you know, I would say that in terms of what black Marxism can offer contemporary movements or how it's related is, I would say, exploring that tension. I mean, I think the work I'm trying to do is actually exploring the tension. because I think it's important. And I think Cedric Robinson's work sets the table for us doing that. Because there are moment, there's moments of alignment. I think we're seeing this now with, you know, last summer in particular, you know, between the racial uprisings in uh, the sort of in, in the U.S. and as well as, you know, even the response to COVID and this idea of essential workers. Like, there's a kind of mass movement politics that does kind of create solidarities along race and class. And I think that Robinson's work is an important part in tease, like in, 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 in allowing us not to be lazy to think that, for instance, the proletariat as conceptualized in the 19th century is a universal. But I do think it sort of pushes us to look at a black radical tradition to actually think about how we can reconcile these things. And so I think that like black Marxism, that's what it has to offer. The other part of your question, Ben, I think was about like how I see it being played out in some of the artists. <laughs> That's such a good question. Because in fact, what I'm kind of writing about is how little <laughs> say there is in at least the kind of stuff I'm writing about. And in fact, it's not to say I don't see it at all. So one of the chapters I'm writing in my book is about Demilo Ayo, who in the late 90s, early 2000s, had this really awesome like performance art. It was internet based. It was also kind of live performance art called Rent a Negro. 
which was like kind of, I think, not I think, it was this kind of performance art work that that had like an internet post. It's like early like Netscape old school, like, you know, internet, late 90s internet art stuff that would like allow white people to like rent black people to be friends, to be like a confidant, right? And so like, you know, I think that she's sort of troubling this relationship between sort of commodified black bodies and effective labor, right? Which kind of, of course, I think has echoes of sort of a kind of radical black Marxist tradition, but I think even within her, there's tension because she does see a kind of pathway of, of like monetary kind of exchange that could somehow remedy the inequity, right? And so I think, you know, it's a lot of the things I'm writing about in my book sort of explore that tension. I'm writing about the author Percival Everett. He has a great book called Erasure, which is kind of like playing, this is from, again, like an older book, but like in the, in, I think that was 2000, I think, or 1999, 2000, he wrote that. But it's about this author who writes experimental fiction, no one wants to buy it because they're like, well, you're black. Why don't you write about like the ghetto? And so he's like, okay, fine. I'll write like, it's like the producers. So he writes this like offensive book that is kind of styled off of Nate, Richard Wright's Native Son. And of course, like it wins every accolade. And so there's this kind of tension in the novel between this commodity, this thing he created and his sort of sense of self. So you know, I, there are artists that I'm writing about that kind of grapple with the kind of commodification and these issues of like class and race and anti-capitalism and the way sort of clouds our sense of, of black subjectivity for, as an example and the sort of the, the forms in which it takes like the objects it takes but then i'm writing a chapter about like 50 cent and like these these self-help novels that basically that like black rappers make like you know i came from crack dealing and like you know being shot nine times and look i am now a master of capital and you can be too and so like the point is i do see a kind of tension still between a kind of collective sense of identity and a kind of way through capitalist exploitation by critique and dismantling of it. But then I see versions which are like about the mastery of it, right? That are based on a kind of more like nationalist group identity. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, it's I hate to say it's complicated. My book is sort of exploring that tension that I see that emerges out of the 60s and 70s, in fact, because what you see there is an equal kind of spectrum of ideas about the relationship between black subjectivity and labor and its relationship to capital, you know, that I see being played out in a lot of more contemporary stuff. I think, in fact, part of what I'm suggesting in the book is that there's already in the 60s a kind of anticipation by some of, you know, earlier black artists, especially with the black arts movement and so on and so forth, that anticipate the kinds of discussions we're having about the immateriality of the of the commodity and stuff like that. Oh, and it all relates to art that we're having now that are sort of more hallmarks of neoliberal capitalism. And so I'm not looking at, you know, all the critiques. In fact, I'm trying to figure out the discourse and how it's generated and, and reproduced from the 60s until now, basically, until the Great Recession, basically. Right. Yeah, no, I wanted to pause for a second on this idea of self-reflexivity in in rap and how some of the artists that you're looking at are very overt and drawing attention to the kind of commoditization of their labor and the sort of conditions of production and all of that. I think that's a really interesting idea that you talked about briefly at the very beginning of our conversation, but I think like that's something that I've always found fascinating about rap and I feel like it's 
it's only accelerated. I mean, we're to the point now where like there's a very direct connection between the sort of marketing and selling and commoditization, like the the production of it and the sort of aesthetic of it are like almost one unit, right? Like it's not even like <laughs> they're connected, like, you know, with so many really popular, successful artists, like the sort of the economics of it are right there in the text. It's not even subtext, right? And And I wonder how you think about that theoretically. What does that do? Because one thing it makes me think about is like, does this point out the limitations of like drawing attention to production as critique, right? Because it seems to just legitimate production, these, you know, these horrifically violent forms of economic production that hurt poor people and black people most of all. Does just pointing it out actually do anything or does it in fact legitimate it? You know, so that's a really long-winded question, but it's it's one of the things that this focus on the self-reflexivity, I think, can really help us understand better. Yeah, no, Calvin, that's excellent. Um, that's a really great observation. So I, I'll say two things. One, because some of it has to do with objects and, you know, I would say illegal commodities. So, you know, two, a couple of things that I'm, I'm writing about, I've written about and I plan on talking about in the book. I haven't necessarily worked my way through this quite yet. One is graffiti art, obviously, which, you know, got co-opted and commodified very rapidly in the 70s, right? But, you know, there was a moment in the mid-70s, because graffiti has a, I mean, it has a long history in terms of like public art, you know, in general, and there's history, art historians who sort of look at the history of like writing on walls and so on and so forth, right? But, the version of graffiti I'm, I'm more explicitly talking about is the version that is property damage, right? Public art, unsanctioned public art, which is why I mentioned earlier as well, like the relationship between like punk and kind of no wave and other sort of aesthetic movements and, and hip hop emerging at the same time, because there's a, a similar ethos of taking over public spaces, turning public spaces to art, like, you know, without, a th- without permission, right? Illegal occupation or the legal use of copyrighted or proprietary things and so graffiti you know and the sort of graffiti scourge of the set of what what you know i think was called that of this of the mid to late 70s to me is a perfect example of like the way in which materially you see hip-hop artists graffiti artists in particular um expressing this right and so even the process of graffiti moving from like the you know public illegal art to like gallery art is a really great sort of example of this of what I'm kind of kind of writing about when I talk about that in the book I, I kind of published about this and I, and, I, and I wrote a chapter about the film Wild Style by Charles J. Hearn not so much as a celebration of rap but as like a kind of epitaph to a certain historical moment because that film is all about that transformation, right? The kind of, because, you know, graffiti as an art form is is fascinating because of its ambiguity as material and immaterial, right? It is not something that can be bought. It later becomes something that can be bought, but it's it's mark on already proprietary objects, defacing them and, and devaluing them, in fact, by its presence, I think says a lot about like 
it, it, it is a form of material resistance, even though that might necessarily always be the intention, right? But like that kind of use of the commodity or the devaluing of it is something I think is important, right? So like the history of illegality, of bootlegging, of things that like deform the value of commodities is something that is very kind of intrinsic to rap and I mean, hip hop culture and rap music in particular. And that other side of it is like, and again, this is something I might write something about it, but it's not going to necessarily be in the book. It's about bootlegs. Like there's a, there's a long, especially in the nineties, as rappers were becoming more uh, mainstream and getting signed to deals. If you, I don't know if you guys are fans of like nineties hip hop. I mean, this is kind of like, I cut my teeth on this in particular, but a lot of artists writing about bootleggers and how, how they're angry that their music was being bootlegged. I totally understand, right? Like you want your money, like you made something, you but like bootlegging is again, I mean, it's a kind of, it's not intended as protest, but it gives an insight into like, and bootlegging has, is not just about rap music. There's like a bootlegging culture throughout especially with the advent of cassette tapes and VHS as re-recordable mediums. And so it's this moment when like these commodities can be reused and used in purposes that are not exactly theirs. And like, I'm interested in some of that. So there's that part. There's like the materiality of objects and commodities and how they're used and really are samples, obviously, you know, think about the famous case of De La Soul being sued by the turtles. And, you know, there's this moment in the, in the, in the 80s and 90s when rap and hip hop were like confronting the nature of like value of commodities, I think is very fascinating, right? Even as itself as, a, as an art form. So there's that part, right? There's another thing I want to sort of, I'm going to read from something if you guys don't mind. It's one of my favorite artists is a rapper named Odyssey. He's based out of Maryland. He has this album from 2016, Alawasta. He has this song called Slow Groove that I want to read a little bit from because it's really cool because it gets to something, it gets to your question, Calvin, which is why I want to quote from it. And I'm not going to rap it because, you know, I'm bad at that. So to set the scene, there's a scene in a verse in the song when he's talking about sitting in his studio, his home studio, like thinking about making music, right? And he's like kind of contemplating like, you know, this, 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 the whole work environment of making rap, making hip hop is kind of depressing and driving me crazy, right? I've been thinking about drinking, about using drugs. Artists have done it in the past, you know, like it's this coping mechanism to fame, to like the grind of, of, of musicianship and artistry, which, you know, gets romanticized. And so like, that's the flip side of what I was saying earlier that hip hop is very self-conscious, but there's so much like, you know, again, I grew up in the eighties, so I love metal and rock and stuff like that. There's like this, this romantic side to like musicianship and artistry, which is a, it was a fiction, right? To like the kind of gig work. And I use that word intentionally, that's at the heart of musicianship. Right. The kind of professional requirements of being a musician are hard and horrible. <laughs> and my dad was a musician, so I, I kind of had firsthand experience with this. Right. So anyway, in the middle of this kind of setup at this verse, Odyssey says, and I, I'm going to read this slowly because I think it's kind of like a cool embodiment of what I'm talking about in terms of how artists speak to this. So he says, like, the line is like, it just so happens I'm rewarded for being extreme, right? For like being an artist that's wild and drinks and does drugs. But then the next few lines are really fascinating. He says, applauded workaholic falling asleep in the office and I'll never get fired. Irony, I'm a boss because I could never get hired. Ain't got no off switch. Therefore my bills are higher. 
I've been contemplating drinking in the use of drugs. Favorite artists do it, they all influence us. I ain't talking future, but rather older names. I'm talking Hendrix, talking Davis, talking Marvin Gaye. They were kings, but the coping, they became a slave. Know that I got it in me, don't pass me a shot of whiskey. Anything I do, I do it the most. It just so happens I'm rewarded for being extreme. Applauded workaholic, falling asleep in the office, and I never get fired. Irony, I'm a boss cause I can never get hired And got an off switch, therefore my bill's higher Somebody get coffee, black single origin Like our ancestors, oh you forgot cause you tan lesser This is me in a jam session, cram a lesson in like Party now, study in the end, 100% Right, and so, you know, Odyssey is talking about the, the intense labor that's required And basically a kind of entrepreneurial, self-employed kind of, you know, uh, work sector of being a music producer and rapper, right? But yet, because his home is his office, he sometimes is so tired he falls asleep. But he has the freedom of not being fired because he's his own boss, right? But yet, because he's his own boss, he has power because he can never get hired either. Right. But <laughs> he then embodied, he kind of imagines himself as, as almost machinic. Right. I ain't got no off switch. Therefore, my bills are higher. Right. So that the kind of cost and toll of work both fuels his kind of compensation, but it wears him out. Right. And this mix of like corporate identity with machinic kind of object, like I, I don't have an off switch. Right, being a workaholic and how much we kind of laud and applaud that as like this is to say that like there are there are there are lots of artists and rappers who like because of the nature of the kind of like self-employed service nature of like music and how it's especially how it's like produced now and disseminated and distributed, it's just there's a rich kind of archive in the lyrics, especially, of like artists talking about themselves in these terms. And so, you know, from like graffiti art to now, you can see like this kind of grappling and this self-reflexive nature of like the, 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 these artists in their sense as workers, you know, which I think is very unique. Like it's unique because of the economic shifts that happened in the 60s and 70s. It's kind of getting them to think of themselves in this way versus like, I would say, you know, going back to Boggs, like the scene of the factory floor being the place of like how we think of ourselves as laborers. And I think Boggs himself is like thinking through that, but now it's like this kind of ambiguous workspace, right? Home and work and object and subject and boss and worker are all kind of like mingled together. Oh, I was going to ask. So, I, I mean, what we've seen right over the course of the past year is just so much surrounding the neoliberal co-optation of discourses surrounding work, right? And I think throughout the pandemic, it's shifted perceptions surrounding work. But as you mentioned at the outset, right, there is a reemergence of a woke capitalism, right, where there's uh, discussions surrounding the, the possibilities, productivity, efficiency that all arise in this environment. But again, you know, as James Boggs says, the, the system is exploitative and that system is capitalism, right? And he, he ensures that he invokes very clearly that the issue is systemic. So one of the things that I'm really curious about, and after this, I think we can move uh, towards some more contemporary discussions surrounding critical race theory as well, is just what these critiques and what these aesthetic material critiques offer to contemporary movements and critics 
who are attempting to imagine alternatives, right? And I'm thinking in racial capitalist discourse, I'm thinking in abolitionist movements as well, just in some of the ways that, that black Marxism and black radical thought offer potential and what that means. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, you know, as a scholar and a researcher, you know, I feel like our jobs is to give a sense of the past and its relationship to the present. And to me, what these conversations, whether it's about like the tumult around black capitalism in the 60s and 70s, or even like kind of rethinking the kind of history and cultural politics of hip hop, as another example, for me, it's about giving us an archive and giving us a tradition, in fact, of Black radical, in particular, intellectual engagement and confrontation, as well as a history of like the capitulation and resistance to capitalist exploitation. Like, I mean, I think my job, I mean, I have my own politics and I have my own commitments, but I think as a scholar, my job is to sort of lay bare, you know, the archive and give a genealogy and like show that these things are not new. And, you know, for those who are more aligned with my political proclivities, you know, I know they'll take the resistance part from it. But like, I also think that it's also important to see where the capitulations lie as well. I mean, because I think that studying failure is as much as important as studying success, you know. And so the 60s are particularly important because of the shift I'm mentioning, right, where like we're moving from industrial kind of way of thinking about work and labor from industrial forms to like the more service-based stuff. And what's great about reading this archive of stuff from the 60s around black capitalism is a lot of these economists, even the more centrist ones are like, the problem is we're seeing the proliferation of service capital, the service economy that inherently is exploitative, right? I mean, like there's this kind of like romantic idea. I'm not saying it's romantic because it's not true because in terms of wages, it's clear that like salary, managerial, other kinds of forms of labor pay more. But like the service economy is what's booming, right? And there's, you even see for centrists, they're like, ah, this is not sustainable, especially for black people who historically have occupied the service realm, right? Because of like disease of slavery and Jim Crow and sort of the, the kind of narrow space of the, of the economic market that blacks were allowed to occupy by law oftentimes, you know, after the Civil War into the 20th century. And so a lot of this comes up in these debates and people like, you know, Boggs, Huey Newton, Andre Lord, Donald Harris, you know, Barbara Smith, Angela Davis, they're all like talking about this stuff in the 60s and 70s, right? And I mentioned sort of, you know, Odyssey now and like graffiti. It's like they're all kind of always talking about this. And I think just giving an archive of that and giving a sense of the tradition of that is really important because I think that oftentimes we forget that we've we've been down this road before. You know, and I think that especially now with like woke capitalism and, you know, even like Trump's platinum plan. I mean, I just was like, he, like he borrowed so much from Nixon and Reagan. Like this is another just borrowing from the Nixon book. Right. And in terms of woke capitalism, I think it's fascinating because I think unlike then where that's a moment of transition, what we see now, Ben, to your point, is like woke capitalism has a lot to do with race and like putting black makers and representation or black and brown makers and representation into the space of 
you know, capitalist enterprise, which again, this is what was happening in the 60s. But I would say the difference is, and this is where Theodore Cross's book is really important, we didn't get much into it, is that it's particularly tied to entrepreneurship and self-employment, right? So woke capitalism is as much about race and identity and sort of like, you know, having your kind of politically correct ways and adjectives and, and, and terms, as it is, I think, tied to like, a general sense in which like the discourse of care and flexibility has long been a sort of part of neoliberal capitalism since I would say the 80s and early 90s, the development of that particular part of it, right? That's tied to the tech industry and so on and so forth. Like that's also a version of wokeness, right? You don't have to work so much, except you have to work all the time, right? You can pick your own schedule as long as you're constantly working, you know? And so like, that's the other side of it that I think is just kind of finally intersecting with you know, it, it responds to sort of the, the racial uprisings of last summer, right? So again, like, I think it's just like, I feel like reading that stuff from the 60s and, re and seeing what's happening now, I'm like, well, it seems like we just are coming out with the same responses, except like the language is different and the historical circumstances are different, but it's looking at the free market as like a, as a, as a solution. Yeah, no, I, I think we want to move now to another example of contemporary writers and thinkers seeming to act as though, you know, history is just starting again from square one, right? And and that's, you know, there's this slogan in conservative discourse that's become really popular in the last, I would say, three, four months has been really the, the kind of boom of this, is the term critical race theory. And, and this, I would say, is picking up from conversations that accelerated last summer around you know, for a while it was cancel culture, right? This this idea of cancel culture was circulating in conservative and, and even centrist discourses. And the idea was that people who aren't, you know, sufficiently woke on issues of policing, issues of racial inequality are being canceled in a you know, in a widespread way that's causing problems in our society. And this has been replaced in conservative discourses now with this idea of critical race theory, that critical race theory is being taught in elementary schools, that it's being pushed by woke capitalism. Interestingly, I think conservatives have now started critiquing woke capitalism. But as you point out in your work and what you've talked about today, they kind of invented it in, in the Nixon era, right? So maybe that should be a they did. That, 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 maybe that should be a democratic slogan or rejoinder. Like you all invented this. Like don't accuse us. So much now? Don't accuse us of being the woke capitalists. Like they but, want to be the party that freed the slaves. I'm like you're the party that also developed woke capitalism. Right. Like, so you, you have to own it. You know. Um, but the Democrats would never use that critique because that would require that they critique capitalism. But anyways. Correct. Yeah. But we wanted to get your take on both like critical race theory as what I would call a kind of negative conservative ideograph like it defines who conservatives are not and it defines who they believe America should not be right but also like what critical race theory actually is in academic discourse what value it has and so just to kind of give us your take on this recent conversation yeah no thank you uh no it's it, it it's like it, it makes it makes my brain hurt the kind Same. of like <laughs> the kind of contortions that the right takes to like own the libs as it were <laughs> um, but you know in terms of critical race theory still, I mean and I, I don't have to say much about this to the two of you but 
What fascinates me so much is like how old of an idea it is. I'm going to get to the particularities of your question, but there's a really great article in the New Yorker recently about the kind of conservative, I want to say he's an activist who got the conservative race, the, I mean, the, 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 the critical race theory kind of ball rolling. And I'm forgetting his name now. Christopher Rufo, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Christopher Rufo. We that's have a right, lot that's more right, that's about right. Christopher Rufo, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, he, you know, in the way this started, is like he was leaked a video from a Zoom. I mean, Zoom has been, a, I think, a very important form for like outing all kinds of, or like as evidence for all kinds of terrible things. I mean, for the right, because, you know, he was sort of given this uh, training and, you know, the, you know, having all these like white executives talk about their privilege and he was sort of sent them recording like, can you believe they're making us do this? And he got the ball rolling for like, you know, we got kind of got into the Fox News cycle, so on and so forth. But, you know, it's very, it was very strategic attempt to weaponize a term that has now come into vogue, kind of like intersectionality, right? Both of which actually have their roots in the 70s and 80s, right? Back when I was, uh, I, I was too young back then, but when I was in grad school, you know, I, I entered grad school in the late 90s, 1998, 99. And, you know, when I was in seminars, like we would study this as like I came in the wake of the culture wars, mm. like the mm. 90s culture wars, which and was so, the 90s version of the cancel culture debate. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so and all, that was all about the 70s and 80s, you know, like is the reverberations of that. And so the point is, it's, you know, the weaponizing of this idea that as the two of, you know, kind of comes out of critical legal studies, which is, which is a discipline within law studies is, you know, from the 70s, right? And so critical race theory was a kind of building on the work of, of critical legal studies scholars who wanted to look at the influence of culture and ideology on legal discourse and rulings. And, you know, what folks like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and Cheryl Harris and others who were involved in the kind of early writings of critical race theory were doing was basically kind of taking that framework and looking at the sort of how race played into that. One thing I will say about Rufo that he's gotten right, although it's in a very anti-Semitic and very kind of like racist way, is that when you look back, especially at the work of Crenshaw, and as an aside, I taught a class at CMU, a mini on race and ethnicity studies, and we spent a few weeks on critical race theory and a bunch of other, because at the time it was funny, this is like, this is right, this is like 2018, I think. I was interested in intersectionality and like the way in which these ideas move from academia to like the public sphere into like mainstream discussions. And so we talked about intersectionality and that other sort of deconstruction and like the way these kind of terms just kind of like pop up or identity politics, right? There's like a litany of like academic terms that get weaponized, right? And still are with us in, the, in that way. Um, identity politics has never receded from the sort of mainstream political discussions. Anyway, so we talked about Crenshaw's work and how Crenshaw was very much, you know, sort of interested in, in Antonio Gramsci and the idea of hegemony. I wouldn't say Crenshaw's a Marxist, I wouldn't say that, but like she understood that the work of someone like of Gramsci and others who are very important to the field of cultural studies, you know, are precisely important because they, they, they are able to, to approach culture and ideas from as much of a materialist position as possible. 
And that, that materiality, that materialism is important to way to think about how legal discussions are made, how we talk about the law, how we talk about the subject of the law, right? Who is the subject of the law? Who isn't? And so I'm saying that to say that when Rufo talks about like cultural Marxism, I'm like, he's wrong, but he's not wrong. That in other words, what I think critical legal studies, critical race studies borrows from Marxism is materialism or an attempt at like understanding culture and ideas as having a concrete influence versus the way that legal studies was generally practiced, which is that it's neutral, right? There's there, like these decisions happen in a vacuum and they're just based on precedent, right? That's also in a vacuum, you know? And this is the way, you know, when you have like the constitutionalists and, you know, all these kind of crazy conservative ideas about approaching the, the, the constitution and approaching law, like the Scalia's and, and Amy Comey Barrett, right? Like that kind of school of like, it's a pristine document that is resisting the influence. It's like, it's not. And I think that critical legal studies scholars were moving us away from that idea. And critical race theory is just building on that, thinking about race and gender within that construct. And so this is all to say that Rufo, you know, like the cultural Marxism thing, because that's what he says, like, this is a cultural Marxism. That's an anti-Semitic slur, because that's precisely what, like, they would call Jewish intellectuals in the, like, 60s and 70s, right? And so, like, it's not weird, but it's like, well, you know, we're going back into the well of, like, anti-Semitism and other kinds of, you know, like, you know, red baiting, retrograde ideas to kind of slander some other idea that challenges power, basically. Yeah. No, I I want to pick up on this idea of the distinction between sort of non-critical race theory legal studies and critical race theory legal studies, which I think is really useful how you unpacked that as basically, you know, the law as this like decontextualized, objective, like, sphere of ideas that gets handed down through precedence versus what the critical race theorists understood, which is that law is always materially situated, that it's like specific courts, specific judges handing down rulings in specific situations that have material elements to them. And that, you know, a ruling in a situation in which the defendant is black is different than a ruling in which the, you know, the, the defendant is white and understanding those material factors. Right. And I think that that is precisely, I mean, my understanding of like Rufo and, and his ilk, that distinction is exactly what they want to erase. And I think there are particular institutional reasons for that. So one of the things that various journalists who have been covering Rufo have uncovered is that so he is primarily funded by the Manhattan Institute, right? <sighs> Manhattan Institute, which is a really powerful, rich, conservative think tank. Like New York-based. New York-based yeah. think tank. That's like his main form of employment. He's a senior fellow and director of the Initiative on Critical Race Theory at the Manhattan Institute. So they have an initiative on critical race theory. This policy institute has decided that this legal theory is is necessary to combat through an initiative. And it turns out that it was exactly the Manhattan Institute. Loic Waquant, who's a critic of mass incarceration, writes in his book, Prisons of Poverty, that it was actually the Manhattan Institute that popularized both the ways of understanding urban crime and the policies aimed at suppressing it that basically generated mass incarceration in, in the 90s and the 2000s. And in fact, 
the Manhattan Institute helped publicize the broken windows theory of policing, which was this idea that police need to really aggressively go after low-level criminals in urban areas in order to sort of restore people's sense of safety in, in urban areas. And this was very much driven by the economic incentives that you took us through, you know, that were driven by neoliberalism, like making our cities safe for capitalism again was very much the aim of these policies. So I think it's it seems very apropos that Rufo wants us to not think about the materiality of the law when he is funded by the very think tank that like helped generate so many of these material inequities in the law, you know? Oh, that's spot on. That's such a great connection you made. But yeah, you know, and it's funny because it, as you were talking about broken windows, and again, I grew up in New York in the, in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, so I was there... I was young when Koch was mayor, but, you know, Dinkins, especially Giuliani. I was a teenager when, when Rudy Giuliani was mayor. And, you know, so I was, I was very cognizant of the kind of shift to kind of quality of life crimes and the emergence of stop and frisk, which, you know, was, you know, kind of further developed under, um, under Mayor Bloomberg. And, you know, the reason I'm bringing it up is, A, because you did, and you made that sort of wonderful salient connection, but also... Two things that broken windows uh, sort of like ethos around kind of quality of life and making the city as a space safer investment and international capital and property and, and, and real estate and sort of, you know, certain kinds of, you know, financial, you know, kind of venture capitalist sort of finance driven commerce and also the kind of secondary sort of benefits of that, which has to do with art. Right, and the creation of a kind of livable space. I mean, you know, this is also the moment which sort of Richard Florida and all these other kind of like, you know, we look back now and realize these kind of like ways of looking at art and looking at culture within this neoliberal lens. You know, one of the things about the transformation of graffiti from, you know, defacement into, I mean, to art, but that one that devalued you know, the commodity to one becoming a commodity itself is like this shift that's happening in the 80s and in the 80s, definitely beginning in the 80s into the 90s, which is like, you know, the way in which it moved into the galleries and the way that gallery culture began to rehabilitate, rehabilitate the Lower East Side and the village and places like that in New York, right? This sort of shift of culture into, and particularly art, into a commodities market and an investment market. You know, Broken Windows was one of the kind of the left of remnants of that was the way in which graffiti writers were like criminalized. So either it's funny. So graffiti writers were either, you know, thrown in jail, beaten up by cops, killed, you know, in the 80s. Or there were, you know, there were these efforts of like turning their art into like beautification projects, making murals, right? That like they saw graffiti as a kind of quality of life concern that either, the you know, that law would cure, right, as it were, for the city, because you can't have graffiti on buildings, right? So there's a connection, and the Manhattan Institute was actually a very important instrument there. The idea of the super predator, you know, this idea of, like, youth who, like, are, like, hopped up on, you know, like, drug culture, and they're, like, more dangerous than any other teenagers. They'll take your life, you know, at any second. That's an idea that came out of this kind of, you know, that Hillary Clinton used in the 90s and Bill Clinton, like, this kind of, like, you know, the kind of ramping up of the war on crime, as it were. All of this is also produced out of this kind of like neoconservative Heritage Foundation, Manhattan Institute cabal, for sure, which is not very different and connected to, I mean, again, the language is different to like, 
what are they called uh, black what did the FBI call them like black identity radicals black or identity like extremists extremists yeah. right like there's like kind of like weird continuity between these things the kind of criminalization of of, of, of of black life, in fact, inherently, right? But that's generated out of this policy and these like white papers and think tank, like there's an intellectual sort of machine behind a lot of this. And so I really, I really appreciate that connection there. And you're right, like the city, the space of the city becomes again, going back to where we began, a place to kind of, you know, hand-wing about all this over and over and over again. And you see the kind of legacies of this in the critical race theory discussion. It's just different, like the language is different. Maybe like the actors are different, meaning like now academics are involved in like, you know, destroying our idea of America. But like, for the most part, the culprits are always the same, right? Uh, They're black and brown and they're poor and they want to change things. The other thing I was gonna say is, and I won't go too much into this, but this is also a moment that kind of, you know, the, the idea of like, criminalizing black bodies and it's rich to kind of art and culture. It's also in the nineties in this moment of broken windows and quality of life that the, you know, the New York police department had this like hip hop squad. They had like a, a division of the detective, their, their detective unit that would investigate rappers. Oh my Right. They kept God. these long files of them. And there's a book that was written by, I can't remember the name of the author, but it's called like hip hop cop, which is about as this one police officer who's a part of that. But again, it's like this interesting intersection there between like the crimes that are created. This is different than I was saying earlier, but like out of black culture that needs to be regulated. That's like bringing down the quality of life in the city in particular. But yeah, Rufo, I mean, you know, it's, it, you know, it's sad because on the one hand you're like, well, this is like part of the playbook, right? The cultural Marxism stuff. I mean, it's all out of the 60s and 70s still, you know, but the one thing about the university I think is really critical is that... Critical race theory is an academic university-based idea. And I always felt like this is one of those moments where, you know, I don't like statements and university statements. I think they're always hollow and, and useless. But I actually feel like this is a moment where, like, the university does need to make a very powerful statement and stand. Individual universities. Because this is threatening the very basis of, like, the free exchange of ideas. As much as the right ironically i mean again irony is wasted now i mean these people know what they're doing but it's like as much as like i felt like universities in the wake of last summer actually aligned themselves more with like right provocateurs and and you know manhattan institute funded thinkers and policy writers around like free speech right which is just such a bankrupt term at this point it's been like destroyed by the evil forces of the world right kind of double down on like let's talk about free speech on campus right the attacks on critical race theory, whatever that means to them, is a direct assault on like academic freedom. You know, I mean, for state legislatures and other, you know, especially in states with large state university systems, pushing these laws through. I mean, if you want to talk about censorship, <laughs> you know, like is is right in our faces. It's nothing like what they are saying we are doing to them. You know, this is a direct attempt to use the law and the courts to stifle and punish ideas. Yeah, that is really helpful in thinking through some of the material connections between broken windows policing and certain evocations of racial horror surrounding critical race theory, right? And what I really appreciate about what you've said is that 
you know, the arguments seem very similar, but the players are much different. And I was reminded of an essay that was recently published in the American Quarterly by Bench Ansfield, right? The Broken Windows of the Bronx, Putting Theory in Its Place. And there's a moment in there that I see so many echoes in the ways that academic labor itself is not being protected, and it's become symbolic and almost a synecdoche of the types of post-racial discourse that we see or the emergence of neoliberal colorblind ideologies in how we're talking about race, how we're talking about institutions of privilege and power. So I just wanted to read a brief quote, and then I hope you can talk a little bit about some of the responses, maybe not by administration themselves, but we can look a little bit about a joint statement by the American Association of University Professors together. So Ansfield writes, the racial mattering of the broken window, blending matter and racial symbolism, exemplifies the transformations from not speaking about race, but rather using different language. During the era of Wilson and Kaling, where they introduced their theory, race could speak loudly through the broken window while mitigating the risks associated with the explicit reference to the racialized body. Unlike depictions of the dangerous black and brown bodies, which by the 1980s were liable to draw charges of racism, the synecdoche that linked the broken window to the decaying city was more difficult to denounce. And so I think what's interesting in our moment, right, there is a materiality to this discourse, and it's not so much a broken window through which intonations or fears surrounding race and racialization are being projected, but rather the bounds of the university, right? So I just wanted to get some of your responses on how university professors have responded and how academic laborers are thinking about the rights malignment of critical race theory. Yeah, that's a great quote. And I like the connection you're making here. I mean, (laughs) you know, I really don't have, I don't have anything sophisticated to say only because I think the stakes are clear, which is, it's hard not to connect what's happening with the very kind of frontal assaults to the university, which again, there's a long tradition of that, whether it's in the 60s. I mean, literally, they were killing college students, you know, through the Vietnam protests or, you know, the, 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 the calls by, you know, black and brown students and women and to create, you know, ethnic studies, women's studies, black studies. Right. And now, wait, wait, can I can I just point something out? And now those are the programs that are condemned as woke. Right. That are condemned (laughs) as. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And then, you know, we have in the 80s and 90s. Again, this is just because I'm old. It's just remembering the culture wars and what do we do with the great books and why are we teaching this or. How do you have a, a photograph of piss Jesus and like this kind of way in which, you know, art, academic ideas that, you know, end up kind of influencing popular culture and our kind of mainstream critical discourse. There's always a pushback from the right, but also from the left as well, I would say, in fact. So I don't want to just exonerate, you know, those who kind of think of themselves as our allies as well. But my point is to say that it's important to take this all of a piece as an assault on institutions that is happening across the board, whether it's about voting rights, whether it's about, you know, is the siege of the Capitol just a tourist excursion that got out of hand? 
Or is it, you know, like an insurrection? Do we really need to have, you know, laws protecting the vote? Or do we need to find better ways of, of disfranchising people? Like, you know, and whether it's done through litigation or direct confrontation, you know, we have this kind of very powerful assault on what little protections and in institutions are left to create some semblance of a democracy in this country. And I'm not saying that we have one and it's being lost. I'm saying that what little of it's left is being completely and utterly dismantled in a very clear way in front of our eyes, right? And so I see the kind of critical race theory tumult and, you know, this kind of, you know, and I hate to use this word because it's been overused, but this kind of, you know, gaslighting and revision of the past and sort of telling all of us up is down and black is white and Confederate statues aren't really about a slaveholding sort of, you know, breakaway nation state, but just about heritage, you know, or the co-optation of ideas like identity politics, right? And it's just, you know, there's just this very direct assault to what is left of democracy. And, you know, I think we just need to talk about it that way. You know, I mean, and when I mean by we as the university, I mean, I, I think you, you two, myself, we can talk about that this way. And maybe the people we organize with, we can talk about that way. But like the institutions that are supposed to form, supposed to form pillars of what's little of left of democracy should be saying something about it, too. And I find that since last year, there has been not only hesitance, but when there is a, and a statement about it, it is done in the most anodyne corporate speak. Like we just have this language as, as my colleague, our colleague Jason England likes to talk about, like a script that has been developed around DEI and equity that like actually doesn't address authoritarianism, that doesn't address the inequities that are fundamentally rooted in capitalism. It's not, it's not, it's a feature, not a bug as people like to say, right? These are things that like are facts, but you know, the institution that we belong to, and I'm not just talking about CMU, but just like the university, is always hesitant to just say that thing. And I think as long as that hesitance is there and that desire, like we are on the ropes, you know? And so Ben, to, to your point, it's like, you know, I see all these connections and I just can't help but say like, if we don't do something about it, if we don't take a stronger stand, like we're in trouble. I think, you know, they're coming for us. I mean, it's just that paranoia. It's just a fact when the Pennsylvania state legislature introduces a bill that's going to punish free people from using very vetted academic research to teach, we're in trouble. It's a big deal. I mean, CMU is a private university, so like they're probably fine, but like, what about Pitt? What about Penn, you know, like what about institutions that are not private? Yeah, no, we have so many colleagues, even just within our own state who are threatened by these laws. And I mean, I think this is a great place to close things out with a question for you about you know, retrospectively, if you could give us your your take or your assessment on how at CMU, I mean, let's talk about Carnegie Mellon, the the institution that that we're most directly a part of. You know, how has CMU done addressing the concerns of students of color, faculty of color over the last year? If you want to give us your kind of straight talk on that. Um, to give you a platform to do that. I, I will keep it simple because I feel like I, my feelings are already out in the public sphere, which is we have done what everyone else has done. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that, which sure. isn't much. You know, there's a, there's a template. Right. You know, every university has a DEI, pro, you know, pro, vice provost of this, a center for that. You know, and I think that 
these things are good, I think that there are such, especially at STEM universities, where like the dearth of students from unrepresented minorities in the US, because we're in America, is just horrible. You know, that you have just, when you look out, when you see the numbers, they're atrocious. So I think that doing better in that department is incredibly important, right? Without a doubt. But there are larger shifts about what is valued in terms of what gets studied and funded. You know, we're in the humanities, so naturally, you know, I, that, I think the human. I mean, I know the humanities is the most important discipline at any university. You know, we don't have, a, the CMU doesn't have a school of liberal arts. Like we're not a liberal arts based university. And lots of universities have, are based in the liberal arts. That is not the sort of centrifugal force of our university. And so I think that you can see that and, and, and tell that that's not where our priorities lie, whether it's in our own college, Deacon College, or even at university at large. And I think the absence of that is, 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 is something that is, 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 is important to note because there are just disciplines associated with that that I think could help us think more about these issues in a thoughtful way instead of just kind of taking the boilerplate you know, here's your center, here's your vice provost, we've addressed the problem, right? Without speaking truth to power. And what I mean by that is not saying racism exists, it's saying racism exists, anti-blackness exists. These things are tied to the rise of authoritarianism, right? These things are tied to the fundamental inequities of capital that are just continually increased. I mean, these are facts, it's not like, this is not ideology. Like you can see this is the case historically there's evidence, there are receipts to all of this, but like you will never get a university to say those things, you know? And so, but I don't expect that, you know? And so that's the other side. I don't expect anything like that from CMU, but that's what we're here for. We're here to sort of talk about these things. But yeah, I mean, we're just doing what everyone else is doing and which is thoroughly inadequate. And I think with CRT stuff, the critical race theory concerns, this is me saying, well, here it is again, like these things are coming to our doorstep and I think it's a moment to really take a stand. As an institution, you, me, we can all say things about it, but like until, I mean, the AAUP statement was good. I mean, because it was a statement, but I think it's gonna take more than that because I think what it portends is something that's a, a danger that's already here that we saw on January 6th. It is not going away. Well, Rich, we wanna thank you so much for taking us through just a wonderful archive to think through our contemporary moment, to think through capitalism, Marxism, as well as some of the, the responses recently emerging surrounding critical race theory. But yes, thank you so much, Rich. It was really wonderful to talk with you today. No, thank you. This was such a great conversation, and I'm sorry for getting so soapboxy at the end. I like to kind of keep it... <laughs> no, yeah, that's... We, we, we the reserve detail, the end of the show for the soapbox. That's <laughs> good, good. Well, then in that case, I'm glad that I was on a soapbox. Thanks for being here, <laughs> Thank you. No, this is wonderful, and I really appreciate the invitation and the time and the thoughtful questions that you sent me. It was really a lot of care and, and investment in it that I really appreciated. Thank you. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Ben Williams, Calvin Pollock, and Alex Helberg. Reverb's co-producer is Sophie Wadzak. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. 
You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for listening.